0: Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Good morning, church family. Boy, it is great to see you. I've already dropped my notes, so it's a sign of how it's going to go today. Nice to see so many wonderful faces today. I want to take just a minute to say thank you to our brother David for his careful attention and his sensitive touch to the um, thoughts on the communion this morning. Boy, it's probably one of the most essential things we do together to commune with our Lord. And it's why we dedicate such a special time to do that, to make sure that our hearts are transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we do that, at communion. And Uh, As we bring the word of God to you today now in our sermon, we pray that it will continue to transform you. Some of you who have been around for a while have seen David and his beautiful wife, Bella, grow and mature, become more Christ-like. We're so thankful for the time that they have dedicated to the body here and themselves in their growth. Some of you may not know that David and Bella have made a commitment to go to the Southeastern Institute of Biblical Studies. I get it right? I mess that one up all the time. But David and Bella want to dedicate themselves to lifelong ministry. They want to be missionaries, maybe. They want to serve in a local church. They're not 100% sure, and that's great because they're leaving room for the Lord to lead them. And I'm so excited for the journey that's going to begin uh, at the end of July for them as they go down to Knoxville, Tennessee to train to be in ministry. And with that said, this young couple's going to need some of your help. And I want to take just a moment to ask you to give thoughtful, prayerful consideration if you can actually help them financially get down there and go. Um, if you can do a one-time gift, that's great. Let our elders know. I want you to think prayerfully about what you could do, do for them from August of 2018 to about July of 2020. They're going to be down there for that period of time. If you could maybe contribute to them monthly. And don't think of what your gift might be being too small. $10, $20 a month, $50, $100 a month. If you can commit to helping them get down there so that their finances are off their mind, and they can dedicate themselves to being trained to be vessels in the hands of the Lord, to be used for him, we would love for you to consider that and let one of our elders know, uh, if you're able to help, or let me or Matt know, and we'll definitely get that information to them. So I, I thank you for hearing me on that, and we thank David and Bella for their willingness to serve our Lord that way. All right, this morning... We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 through chapter 9. That's really the zone that we're going to be in. Now, we're not going to dig into each portion or each part of this text, but that's going to be the area that we're going to land the plane, so to speak, and hang out in. And as we get going this morning, I want you to begin to consider all the different word pictures or metaphors that people use to describe what life is like. You can maybe think about, the sport metaphor, the racing metaphor, how life is sort of like a sport or a race and that we are all competing to have victories in this life. Maybe some of you are facing some challenges right now and you're thinking about life as sort of like a war or a battle and you got to fight through difficult times over your enemy to have victory. Or maybe some of you when I said this are thinking about the famous Forrest Gump when he said life is like a box of chocolates, right? You never know what you're going to get. There's all kinds of metaphors That people use to give us pictures or images of what life is like. And the best one that I think captures sort of the essence is the metaphor of the journey. That life is like a journey. And there are different parts of that journey, different seasons of that journey. But it captures this movement aspect of life that we are moving from one phase to the next. But we're on a course to some kind of destination. Humans sort of gather around this idea of journey. And some of those seasons or sections of the journey are like a sport. Some of them are like a battle. Some of them are like that box of chocolate. They're just really uncertain about what's going on. But all of them are part of each and every one of our individual journey on this life. Now, there are some things that are needed for a journey to go well. You're going to need resources like food and maybe clothing, shoes, Something to sleep in. You're going to need energy to go on this journey. And sometimes you get tired and you got to slow down. You're going to need wisdom on the journey. And usually as you take a few steps on the journey, you learn some wisdom by experience. And what makes the journey most pleasurable oftentimes is some version of companionship. Friends or family, spouse, children, something like that. But each of those variables can fluctuate. A lot of resources are not a lot. A lot of energy are not a lot. Companionship or no companionship. Those resources, those things can fluctuate. But there's one thing. There is one element to a journey that is absolutely essential that it's right. And if it's not right, the journey stops. It halts you in your tracks. And that one essential thing is your foundation, the thing that you're traveling on, that which you're walking on. And when your foundation cannot be traveled on, your journey immediately shuts down. Imagine a hiker through the woods coming up to a huge ravine and he can't pass over that. He has to stop and figure out where to go. When you hit a foundation that cannot be traveled on, the journey stops. And that metaphor... That analogy continues on with us even in the story of life. You see, when you and I build our lives on a foundation that begins to crumble, the journey of our life stops, it halts, it crumbles. Jesus warned us about this. He came to the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, and he talked about those who would listen to him and obey, and he said that there's two different kinds of people. There's a wise kind of person who builds their house on a rock. And the storms of life come, difficulty comes, and that house, because it's built on a rock, that wise man, his house does not crumble. But there's a foolish man who steps out and builds his house, his life, on sand. And when the storms of life come, because he's built on the wrong foundation, his house crumbles, and it goes to nothing. Well, Isaiah chapter 7 through chapter 9 is going to bring us into a real historical time when a group of people and a king of this group of people experienced their foundation of life crumbling. That is, King Ahaz and the nation of Judea. So, A little bit of background. Ahaz is the king of Judea, the southern kingdom. Israel is the northern kingdom. And in this area called Palestine, there are all these little nations. And then there's a large nation on the northeast part of Palestine. At this time, it's Assyria. It will become Babylon, then Persia, and it goes on farther. And on the southwestern side of Palestine is what's called Egypt, another major nation. And Assyria at this time was the powerful nation. They were dominating everybody. They had an evil king that was just a conqueror that wanted to consume more and more land. And this king of of Assyria had set his sights on Egypt. But you know what was between Assyria and Egypt was Palestine. And they knew that. And so during this time, Ahaz's king, the northern uh, kingdom, Israel, had a little partner called Syria. Not Assyria, but Syria. And those two nations came together and said, hey, let's go down to Judah because Judah's small. They're only two tribes. They're kind of tiny. And let's beat them up and let's put a king in there that we can control. And then if us two, Syria and Israel together are controlling Judah, we might have enough power to hold our ground against Assyria. And so King Ahaz learns about this. He hears about it. The nation begins to hear about it and they're scared to death. Chapter 7, verse 2 says their heart is trembling like trees in wind. They're scared. They don't know what's going to happen. And so Ahaz has a problem. He's facing two major fears. He's panicking at the thought of Israel and Syria invading him and kicking him out of the kingdom, not being king anymore. He's scared of that idea. But he's also afraid of Syria, the big nation, gobbling him up. And he doesn't know what to do. He's scared to death. And in this moment, in chapter 7, God sends his voice, Isaiah, to Ahaz. Ahaz looks at his life and thinks, I don't have many options. Get kicked out as king, or make a deal with Assyria to keep me as king, but do a deal with the devil, so to speak. And he doesn't know what to do, and he's strategizing, and God sends Isaiah to him with an alternative that has always been the people of God's alternative. Forsake all your human alliances and thrust every ounce of trust upon the living God. That's always an option for the people of God, and Ahaz has forgotten that. And as we'll see, Ahaz opts to go his own way, to stand on his own foundation of his wisdom, of his might, of his kingdom, of his power, and to make a deal with Assyria to keep his kingdom. And this does not go well for Ahaz. But for us today, embedded inside of this story of Ahaz the king and Assyria and Israel and Syria and all these kingdom's fighting, embedded inside of this story is a message from God for you and me about what we build our life on, about what we depend upon for our life to move forward positively. That is the foundation on which you stand. So your primary question today is this, what is the foundation that you stand on in your life? What is the thing that you base the hope of your future on? What is the thing that you rest upon for security and assurance? What is the thing that you stand on for all your stability in your life? There are only two points this morning, bonus for you, right? Only two points. Point number one, our foundation needs inspection. It needs checked. Lisa's uncle works for the Department of Transportation. I'm running out of time, so I'm going to hold off on the state worker joke. But anyway, he works for the Department of Transportation. And his job in Fairfield County and Hawking County is to inspect all the bridges. That's what he does. And do you know when he's supposed to inspect those? Before any bridge collapses. He's got a regular routine. He's got a schedule all the bridges in Fairfield County and Hawking County and Perry County, and he drives around on a regular schedule, and they have a standard inspection because you need to do inspections before there's a crisis. But you know what happens after a crisis? Like, do uh, sto- you all see the story of the Southwest flight? Um, the last two, actually. We're flying Southwest in September. Can't wait. Whew. Um, <laughs> Been kind of a touch and go thing on that, but so Southwest, their window broke recently, and they took they took the airplane to Seattle so Boeing could check into it. The moment something happened with that flight, a crisis happened. There were all of these inspectors on the ground saying, "We got to figure out what's going on because in the midst of crisis, they've got to do some inspection. They got to figure it out." Problems force us to inspect, but I want to encourage you, even if you're not in the midst of any sort of life crisis right now, it is really healthy for you, safe to inspect what you're standing on. How do you do that? Well, Ahaz is going to show you. I've got three questions for you to think about. Here's how you can find out what you're standing on. Question number one we're going to learn from Ahaz is, what controls your thoughts? You'll figure out your foundation when you ask the question, what controls all my thoughts? What dominates my thinking? If you look in chapter 7, verse 3, you're going to see Ahaz... It says, and the Lord said to Isaiah, go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashab, that's um, uh, uh, Isaiah's son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now why is God so specific about where he wants Isaiah to meet Ahaz? Here's why. Because a nation can only survive as long as their water supply is good. And one of the tactics militarily um, in those days was to cut off a nation's water supply. So where is Ahaz right now? He hears troubles coming. He runs right to the conduit where the water comes in to his nation. He's strategizing. What's controlling Ahaz's thoughts right now is not prayer. He's not going to the priests. He's not going to the prophets to inquire of God for wisdom like David would do. And he'd say, how should we handle this? Ahaz is depending upon his wisdom. And in this moment, what's controlling his thoughts is all of his strategy. So here's a question for you. When you have nothing to think about, what do you think about? Because you're always thinking. When you have no, nothing bearing down upon you, what fills your mind? Another test might be, what is the thing that you post most frequently about on social media? That'll tell you what you think about. What worries you the most in your life? What controls your concerns, your fears? What is that? Okay, question number two. Not just what controls your thoughts, but what controls your commitments? What controls your commitments? Ahaz, in this moment, because of his strategy, decided he would make a deal with the devil. He would commit to the king of Assyria. You can see in 2 Kings chapter 16, verse 7, Ahaz sends a note to the king of Assyria saying, I am your servant, come and save me. That's exactly what he says to the king of Assyria. That was his commitment. So here are you personally. What things in your life demand always that you say yes to them? Where do you feel like you can't ever say no? What are you afraid to say no to? What controls your commitments? So what controls your thoughts? What controls your commitments? Number three, what controls your emotions? Ahaz in chapter 7 verse 2 says that when they heard about the plan of Syria and Israel coming to defeat him, his heart, look down at verse 2, it says this, when the house of David was told Syria is together with Ephraim, that's Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. He's scared to death. So here's the question, what moves you quickly emotionally? What things in your life can make you angry in an instant? Can give you joy in a breath? Can give you pride or security in just a moment? What what things control your thoughts? What control your commitments? What control your emotions? And when you start to answer those questions, you're going to be on the doorstep of figuring out what could be your foundation. Now, some of you in here may be answering those questions saying, I got some good answers like my kids or my spouse or my school or my work. You might be coming up with some answers like that or my retirement accounts are on my mind because I'm close to retiring or my house repairs. I got big things I got to do. You may be coming up with some answers like that, but you're on the doorstep of figuring out what could be, I'm not saying it is, but could be your life foundation. Many of these things that you may be thinking about are good things, priorities, So how can these become your foundation? That's what we have to be careful of. Let me help you keep digging. I want to introduce you to a character um, to help you walk you through an example. This character's name is Joe King, Okay, Do you see Joe King? And I picked a little Italian guy because I'm Italian. My mother's maiden name is de Blasio. And um, he was the easiest example I could think of. So here's Joe King on the screen. And what we're going to try to do is figure out what foundation he stands on. He's a normal guy. He's married for about 13 years, has three kids, a daughter, two sons. Sounds pretty familiar, right? He's me. Okay. Okay. Because this is really the only heart that I can evaluate, so I don't mind laying it before you to show you how this works. Now, Joe King has good priorities. His family matters to him. His work matters to him. Being a good citizen in the community matters to him. Doing right by his God matters to him. At this point in his life, he's trying to be everything that he is supposed to be. But here's how you begin to figure out if the good things in your life that God has given you to be a blessing have now replaced God as your foundation. Here's how you do it. Joe King has to finish this sentence. My life only has meaning and I only have worth if... Fill in the blank. You got to do this with yourself, okay? I'll, I'll give you a few examples. So my life only has meaning and I only have worth if... I am loved and respected by my family, my church, my friends, and my community. So, do you see how this works? Like, I will crumble if my church begins to wonder about me if I'm a good enough preacher for them. I'll begin to crumble, I'll get that. If my family begins to look at me and say, You're not the husband you need to be or the dad you need to be, I begin to crumble. Or I begin to crumble if my neighbors don't have the utmost respect for me because maybe I've slipped up in their presence. Do you see what I'm saying? If that is true of me, my foundation then is a foundation of people's approval. Do you see how I'm standing on that? And if I lose it, my life crumbles. All right, let me give you another one. This is just hypothetical, okay? My life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I am highly productive, productive. I excel at my work, and I'm recognized for it. So I want to do my work well, and I want to do it efficiently and produce good things, and I want people to see that and notice for it. And so if I do work, and I'm not noticed, and I begin to wonder, does anybody care, and is this worth anything? Do you see how this begins to work? Then, or if I make a mistake in my work, or I don't do the best thing I could do, that foundation then becomes an achievement foundation. If I'm not achieving something, my life begins to crumble. I'll give you one more. My life only has meaning, and I only have worth if I'm being faithful enough to God. Now, you might say, pause, preacher, hold on. This is essential, and you're absolutely right. This is essential, but let me show you a danger for religious people. The foundation of my life cannot be my faithfulness to God because it does this. I wish it was always this, but it's not perfect. And that can't be the foundation of my life. And when it is, I've developed what's called a religious foundation, meaning that. Now watch how this works. Do you see what my foundation can be? Other people's approval, my accomplishments, my faith. Now what's the one common denominator that's missing in all of this? What is the the thing missing? Do you look at, oh, there we go. Who is in my foundation? other people, and me. That was never, ever designed to be our foundation. See, all these things like doing well at work and having good relationships and being faithful in your life with God were all meant to be the companions that join you on the journey of your life but never designed to be your foundation. The only foundation that you and I can have is the foundation of God's faithfulness. The Hebrews called this hased, H-A-S-E-D. Remember that word, hased, H-A-S-E-D. In the Old Testament, it's translated the steadfast love of the Lord. They stood upon the foundation that God keeps his word, that God is sovereign and powerful, that God is good and loves them. And regardless of their excellence or non-excellence, God is faithful because of who he is. And you and I have to really do some soul-searching to ask, do we stand on the faithfulness of God or on ourselves? Because there's this interesting statement. Look down in chapter 7, verse 9. There's a warning that Isaiah gives Ahaz. At the very end of verse 9, he says, if you are Ahaz, listen to me, if you are not firm in faith you will not be firm at all now listen to me if you build your foundation on anything else other than God eventually that foundation will crumble even if you build a foundation upon your family and your spouse one of you is going to leave before the other God's faithfulness is the only foundation that you can build upon. And Isaiah says to Ahaz, listen to me. If you are not firm in your faith in God, you're not firm at all. You're on rocky, unstable, crumbling ground. So if that's true, that means that you and I need to have our foundation be corrected. Point number two, our foundation needs correction. Our biggest problem is not just that we have a foundation issue, which we need to own, that all of us do at times have a foundational issue. Our biggest problem is ignoring that issue, not dealing with it, not facing it and changing it. You see, what what moves us to make a change? Have you ever wondered that? Now, I want you to imagine for a moment making a major investment into your life. Buying a car, choosing a college to go to, fixing a major thing in your house like it's going to cost thousands. Imagine doing something like that. What does it take for you to make a decision that is very expensive? Well, again, the scriptures are going to show us what's going to help us move to the faithfulness of God as our foundation to make this choice. The first point is this. We must have conviction In the promises of God have conviction that they're true. You see, what is offered to you, the question you have to ask is, do you believe it can happen? So imagine a salesman presenting to you, I can fix this in your house, or this retirement investment is the best one. You're going to have to have conviction that that promise is a good promise. And over and over, God is promising here through Isaiah to Ahaz, this will not happen. When he hears about Syria and Israel coming together to defeat him, Isaiah says to him, look in uh, verse uh, 7 of chapter 7, it shall not stand. He promises. It's not going to happen. Syria and Israel will be defeated in less than 65 years. I promise you it's not going to happen. But Ahaz didn't believe the promise. God made bold promises to Ahaz, He's made bold promises to you. In chapter 9, this is what Richard read for us. Look in verse 6. He says, here's what your Redeemer is going to be. A child born to us. A son given. The government will be upon his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor. No one has greater insight and wisdom than him. Mighty God. No one has more power and ability than him. Everlasting Father. Nobody has more intimacy than him. Prince Of peace, nobody reconciles like him. And of the increase of his government and peace, it's not going to stop. There is not a nation that will defeat the kingdom of God. And he says he will be on this throne forever and ever, and it will be be managed by justice and righteousness. God has made serious promises to you, so much so that Paul would conclude this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Are you convicted that promise is true? Number two, you don't need to just be convicted of the promises. You need to have certainty of the proof God has given to you. Now, back in chapter 7, God offers Ahaz a sign. He says, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. We'll call that son Emmanuel. And there was an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy in Ahaz's day. There was a child that was born of the prophet Isaiah and his wife, That was meant to be a message to Ahaz, and Ahaz chose not to believe what Emmanuel means, which is God with us. He went his own way, and Isaiah's next son meant that the enemy is coming. But it had an ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ when Mary, the virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, brought forth a baby, a child, and he says this would be the one who is the king. God invites you as a believer or non-believer to examine and test his promises and his proof. Come see what he said. Number three, for you to make a change, you got to be convicted that his promises are true. you got to be certain of the proof that he's laid before you of who he is. But here's the deal maker for all changing happen, for all commitments. You have to have confidence in the person selling you. You see, at the end of the day, all the stuff can line up, all the numbers can make sense, but if the guy or girl sitting across the table from you who's selling you the retirement account or the house repair or the car, you look at them and you have an intuition that says, I don't trust that person, you won't make the deal, you'll walk away. And the question is, do you have confidence in this person, God, who has made these promises? Look at the end of chapter 9, verse 7. The last phrase, and we're all done, the last phrase. He says, of all these great promises of who Jesus is, the foundation that you can stand on, the last phrase is this, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Have you ever seen somebody get that look in their eyes that they're just going to do something regardless of what you said? If you haven't, come to my house. I've got a couple boys that will prove it to you. They just have this look in their eye that they're going to do something. Like when Jesus, on the road to Jerusalem, when everyone knew that he was going to die if he went to Jerusalem, and Luke chapter 9, says that he set his face to Jerusalem, meaning nobody was going to distract him. Nobody was going to get in his way. Nobody would deny him. And Isaiah is telling us the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. No one will be denied, deny him. He will do this. And that phrase, zeal, sounds familiar, doesn't it? Because in John chapter 2, when Jesus, nearing most likely the end of his life, it was around Passover time, comes into the temple. And there's this group of religious people in the temple who have taken the house of God, which is a house of prayer, where the Gentiles in the court, where the Gentiles, who were not people of God, were meant to come, become people of God. That's what the temple was for on the outside. They had made a marketplace where they were pilfering from people, stealing from people, overcharging people. And he's looking at all this business transaction happening and no soul transaction happening. And he's angry and he you know braids this whip. And he starts driving out all these merchants, flipping their tables. He is incensed. And he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. And they come to him, the religious people, and they say, who do you think you are? Prove to us that you're allowed to do this. Like, Like, who do you think you are in this house that you can do this? And Jesus says, you tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll build it again. Now, it took them 46 years to build that temple. And Jesus said, in three days, I will rebuild the place where people can be one with God. He was not talking about a building. He was talking about himself. And in that moment, his disciples remembered this. They said, oh, zeal for my father's house has consumed me. Jesus was living out this reality, zeal for the house of God where humans meet the presence of God and become one with him again, have their sins forgiven and enjoy fellowship with him. The zeal for that to happen consumed the life of Jesus. That's why he lived in poverty. That's why he didn't care about retirement. That's why when he died, he didn't even have clothes. He said, the one thing I want is you reunited with my father. That's all I care about. It consumed him. Now tell me you can't build your life on him. And all this foolish distraction that we're doing, we're building our lives on things that just literally won't last. You either have faith in him or you have no faith at all. It's going to crumble. What's your choice? Let's stand and sing.